I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the September edition of the journal. I'd like to start with an article on the long-term effects of bullying. So what is bullying? Bullying is the systematic abuse of power defined as aggressive behaviour or intentional harm done by peers that is carried out repeatedly and involves an imbalance of power either actual or perceived between the victim and the bully. One in three children report having been bullied at some point in their lives and 10 to 15% experience chronic bullying lasting more than six months. It's interesting, cyberbullying is a relatively small proportion of the total with up to 90% of cyberbullying victims also being victims of traditional face-to-face bullying. In this issue, Dieter Walker and colleagues discuss the long-term impact. Bullying is not a normal rite of passage. Bullying can be direct or indirect. Indirect being characterised by social exclusion, for example. You can't play with us or you're not invited. Bullying is a major risk factor for poor physical and mental health and reduced adaptation to adult roles including forming lasting relationships, integrating into work and being economically independent. Interesting headline data. In the UK over 16,000 young people aged 11 to 15 are estimated to be absent from school with bullying as the main reason with bullying a factor in a much higher proportion of school absence. We mostly don't discuss bullying in the clinic, but should, as it represents a significant risk factor for future physical and mental well-being and is a safeguarding issue, particularly when factors such as impact on education are considered. This is a really important paper for paediatricians to read and to consider in their own practice. There's a useful bullying screener in the paper which is straightforward and easy to implement. The second article I'd like to highlight relates to fever. So who's afraid of fever? Very interesting article written by Martin Richardson. So what would we think about this? If a child has a temperature of 38 degrees centigrade, strip the child down and ask the duty doctor to write up some paracetamol. If the child has a temperature of 39 degrees centigrade, ask for ibuprofen as well as paracetamol. So what's the evidence? In a leading article this month, these issues are discussed. Is fever itself dangerous? Is it a marker of disease severity? Is it beneficial to bring the fever down? Is it the right thing to do? Does physical cooling help? Are the drugs used safe and effective? It's interesting to reflect on all of these topics and on the fact that there is a lack of evidence for antipyrotics being useful for anything other than reducing the body temperature and for us to acknowledge the fact that this effect is not necessarily of benefit to the child. The authors cite NICE guidance which is broadly similar to AAP guidance, which encourages a cautious and stepwise approach to bringing the fever down. The third article which I'd like to highlight 
relates to arthritis as the presenting feature of acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. The presentation of leukaemia is not always typical and this can potentially lead to diagnostic delay. In this issue, Bricks and colleagues report their experience of joint involvement at presentation in a retrospective cohort. That's 286 patients over 21 years. 53 out of 286 presented with localised joint pain, half of which had objective signs of arthritis, most commonly an oligoarthritis, where initial impressions at presentation were of a reactive arthritis in 19, osteomyelitis in 9, and juvenile idiopathic arthritis in 8. Children with joint involvement had, in general, fewer objective signs of haematological disease, so the cytopenia was absent in 24% versus 8% of the rest of the group, and there was no organomegaly in 44% versus 29%. The difficulty is, should everyone who presents with joint pathology be investigated for leukaemia? Difficult question, emotive question. This is discussed in the accompanying editorial, Are You Missing Leukaemia? So it is important to look at this issue in a different way. In children who present with joint pathology, leukaemia is rare. And so the decisions regarding how intensively to investigate remain a clinical judgment based on specific features and the risk-benefit of testing being done. So the fourth article I'd like to highlight relates to cognitive function in adolescents with chronic fatigue. Depression, anxiety and sleep problems are common in children with chronic fatigue syndrome. In this issue, Sulheim and colleagues compare cognitive function in adolescents with chronic fatigue, that's 120 patients, average age 15, with healthy controls, that's 39 patients, average age 15. All completed a neurocognitive test battery. Parents completed the behavioural rating inventory of executive function. In summary, adolescents with chronic fatigue had clinically significant impairment of processing times, working memory, cognitive inhibition response time and verbal learning. Everyday executive functions were significantly worse than controls. These changes were not explained by symptoms of depression, anxiety traits or sleep disturbance and therefore require careful consideration in the assessment of cases, particularly when school absence is a prominent feature. The final article I'd like to highlight relates to emergency admissions and it's an interesting article to think through it talks about the contribution of recurrent admissions and the contribution of chronic conditions to emergency admissions. Rates of emergency admissions have been increasing year on year in children and young people. It's widely felt that at least a proportion of the admissions are potentially avoidable. In this issue, Will Giles and colleagues explore the contribution of recurrent admissions versus admissions for children with chronic conditions to better understand the emergency admissions and therefore strategies to reduce them. The data is of considerable interest and relevance to healthcare planning. 
In 2009, there were 869,885 children who had at least one emergency admission. 32% of these index cases were readmitted within two years. 26% of them within 30 days of discharge. The total number of readmissions generated from the original cohort was 939,710, of which 64% were emergency admissions. Recurrent emergency admissions accounted for 41% of all emergency admissions during the two-year cohort and 66% of inpatient days. 76% of the recurrent admissions were in children with chronic conditions. The important question to ask from this data set is if you want to reduce emergency admissions, which groups do you target? And the authors, therefore, are making the very important point that any attempt to reduce admissions could potentially undermine necessary inpatient care for children with chronic conditions and that that group and the resources for that group might therefore be the best to highlight. My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please refer to the journal website for the full papers.